Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken. And this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. Oh, and before we do it, I have one small issue, or actually a big issue. Ooh. Okay, my horoscope today said, Taurus, a major change taking place today will empower you to achieve your life goals and possibly <laughs> change your life direction or your career path. Take all the time you need to contemplate this new direction. This will become more obvious by next year. And then it says tonight, practical ideas. I don't even know what that means. So I waited all day. Did you for- contemplate it all day? Well, it has to, to happen. It. it has to happen before I can contemplate it. But okay. what I'm saying is nothing happens. So it's total bullshit. But then I was thinking, so every tourist in the world, roughly like what, 12% of the people in the world or something, right? That was going to mm-hmm. happen to that would have been a major upheaval. I'm sure. If it had happened, you don't seem very invested in this conversation. I didn't read my horoscope today. so we're, But we're not talking about yours. We're talking about mine. Yeah. Maybe that's why it doesn't interest Maybe you. Maybe somebody will listen to our podcast and want to buy either film rights to your book or something. Okay. Well, I figured it was going to be something like that. I was waiting for Netflix to call or email. I don't know how they get in touch. I don't think they call. Yeah. Yeah. Except for I don't answer my cell phone. Oh. Well, because of all the proxy spam. I don't answer calls. mine either. You know, I figure somebody can leave a message if that, that's why God. That's what my figure. I don't answer mine. Well. But anyway, I have something. It's not really an update. In June 2021, we did Gerald Goodell Part 1. Mm-hmm. The Waterville, Maine cold case murder of Geraldine Finn, who was killed by Gerald Goodell. And he was convicted just a couple of years ago. I was waiting for his trial for the murder of Janet Broshu, the 1987 murder of mm-hmm. Janet Broshu, before I did Gerald Goodell part two. He did plead guilty and he was sentenced on March 2nd to 32.5 years. So this isn't really an update just to say I am going to be doing Gerald Goodell part two. It won't be my next one, mm. but it will be the one after that. People don't have to listen to episode 102, Gerald Goodell. Yes, part... they do. Can I finish? Gerald Goodell part one to understand part two. They're both pretty much separate and they, they're far enough away that I'll give his background and stuff. But as you were implying, why not listen to it? And it's interesting to me, a lot more people, podcasters and stuff who I haven't listened to, have done Janet Brochu's murder than yes. this Geraldine Finn's. In fact, some of the stories about him pleading guilty, it said he's already serving a life sentence for another murder. And don't even say who he murdered or whatever, which is just wacky. But I anyway, know. did you have anything? There has been another Uber death, but I can't update Yeah, you can't keep one. track. And did to... you see on the news that dentists that got... Yeah. I think I've mentioned this before, but anyone that watches Dateline and 48 Hours a lot, Seems like a lot of dentists kill their wives. Yeah, it does. There was even a, a woman dentist once that killed her husband. And, I and then don't there know. was a case when I was working in New Hampshire of a dentist. He became like this. I can't even remember. And now I shouldn't have brought it up, but not a survivalist, but like he built up a compound and said he, he was a sovereign state and had all these oh, weapons. Geez. Kind of a junior Waco kind of thing that, that didn't end in people being killed and oh, dead. We- of course, New Hampshire is ripe for that kind of foolishness. Should we just go into your... Yes. 
Okay, I'm excited because you keep implying you told Jewel, your daughter, not to tell me what you were doing. Because a... she's the one she's the one that suggested this. Oh, to okay, me. good. Well, because I said to her, I can't think of anything to do. And she said, what about Euronymous? And I said, who's that? So my sources for this were Wikipedia. <laughs> hey, let me finish. Okay. Yeah, I'm just going to read the Wikipedia article. <laughs> As we've you know. been accused of doing. I figure, you know. Wikipedia why should I do be the work. so lucky. Somebody else already did it for me. Right, I'm um, sorry. Wikipedia, BBC News, Slayer Magazine, oh. The Guardian, RevolverMag.com, Loudwire on YouTube, and various interviews and documentaries that were on YouTube. And we'll have some links. I have actually quite a lot of links for you because okay. I had to piece this one together. It takes place in Norway, Ooh. and I can't read any of the like newspaper there aren't any anyway on newspapers.com from norway that i can tell and i couldn't read them anyway i assume you don't mean norway maine no on a related note i have tried i've tried to find out how to pronounce things so to our scandinavian listeners i know all of you speak english because all these guys in this seem to speak english and also how would they be listening to our podcast if they didn't but I apologize in advance for my shitty American ignorance. Okay, so here I go. I've tried to be as accurate as possible. Oh, good. And my reporting, but the regular sources, like I said, were hard to find. And I found some inconsistencies in the facts. So I've tried to go with what comes from the most legitimate sources. And the thing is, a lot of the sources are interviews with people involved. So the veracity of some of the things they say is in question, but still a good story. It was April 8th, 1991. Eistein Arseth returned to his rented house in the woods outside the village of Krakstad in Akershush, Norway, after having been out. Some reports said he was out on errands, but others say he and one of his roommates had both been away for the weekend. And I think it's the latter. I think they had been gone for the weekend. Eistein was surprised to find the door locked since he knew his other roommate, Per Olin, known as Pele, stayed home that weekend. Pele and Eistein lived with another young man, and the three were in a band together. Along with being their home, the house in the forest served as a rehearsal space with other band members. Eistein knocked and called out, but no one came to the door. Only Pella had a key to the house, so Eistein took a ladder and climbed into an upstairs window. Eistein was greeted by a grisly sight. Pella was sprawled on the floor with his wrists and throat cut and the back of his head shot off. He had tried to kill himself with a knife, and when that didn't work, he took the shotgun and shot himself in the forehead. Eistein climbed back down the ladder, went into town, and bought a disposable camera. He came back to the house, went into Pell's room, and rearranged the placement of the gun and knife. Then he took some photos of his roommate slash bandmate. Then he called police. Hmm. Pella was 22 at the time of his death. He was the lead vocalist of the band. The other roommate was Jan Axel Blomberg, the drummer. Eistein was the lead guitarist. The band was called Mayhem, and the genre was black metal. Black metal is a subgenre of heavy metal rock. Like heavy metal, it's loud, which is fine. Everyone has their own taste in music. Mm -hmm. I have nothing against loud music and screamy singing. And I still listen to my Never Mind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols CD in my car. I have to do it when I'm alone Mm because no one else likes it. While researching and writing this episode, I listened to Mayhem's first studio album released in 1994 called Demistrius Donsotanas, I think. I listened to it a couple times and I listened to a few of their live tracks. It's not my cup of tea, but like I said, 
is heavy on guitars, overdubbing, and drums. And the singing is not the main focus. It's hard to make out the lyrics, which are actually in English, at least the songs I listen to. I listened to some earlier recordings. I tried to listen to as much as I could online. Yeah, some of it I kind of was tapping my foot to after a while, Mm because after you listen to it like four times. Anyways, here are some lyrics just to give you an idea of what their songs are like. Everything here is so cold. Everything here is so dark. I remember it as from a dream in the corner of this time. Diabolic shapes float by out from the dark. I remember it was here I died by following the freezing moon. Night again, night, you beautiful. I please my hunger on living humans. Night of hunger, follow its call. Follow the freezing moon. Darkness is growing. Eternity opens. The cemetery lights up again, as in ancient times. Fallen souls die behind my steps by following the freezing moon. This is the song, Freezing Moon, probably Mayhem's best-known song. The lyrics were written by Pele, who used the stage name Dead. There's one version online of him singing this song. I think it's a live version, but it's kind of hard to tell because of the type of music it is. There are only two songs of Mayhem's that I found with Pele singing. The other one was Death Crush. Like a lot of heavy metal, black metal is theatrical. The bands dress a certain way, and there's a specific kind of style that goes along with the music, which is true of a lot of genres. If you think about punk or new wave or glam rock or grunge, it's not like there are written rules. It's more like there's a certain sensibility that goes along with each type of music. The black metal philosophy was nihilistic and espoused what they like to call Satanism, but it's more the worship of the idea of Satan. I may be wrong, if so, correct me, but I think Satanism is more of a humanist and hedonistic philosophy, not the worship of Satan, the entity, or the devil. In any case, I'm an atheist, which means I don't believe in God, and I definitely don't believe in Satan. So when I was doing my research, a lot of the beliefs, music, and antics of the black metal band struck me as silly. Some of it may be my advanced age, although the people in my story are all about my age, maybe a little younger, five or six years You mean they're your age now? Now. Yes. Yes. So I was right, you know, back then. Right. I was a teenager. I mean, I was a little older. Right. Early 20s. But even back then, I can't see being affected by the, quote, shocking nature of black metal, even as a teenager. I think they might have been scary when I was a kid or a preteen. But the posturing and the makeup and the black outfits and scary lyrics just don't have the attendant impact on me. But for the kind of people who want to ban Harry Potter and stuff like that, yes, I'm sure that they wouldn't have liked it. And I, I don't want to offend anybody listening, but anyone that uses Satan, the word Satan unironically or something, no matter how they're using it, or if they use it as a serious thing, I just, I can't. Totally, I can't take them seriously. I totally agree. And also remember, this was around the time of the whole satanic panic era, which I think had something to do with the rise of these bands. How better to shock the grown-ups than by saying you worship Satan during that time when all this fear was going around? Right. It's what teenagers want to do. Shock and scare the adults. I can see someone liking the music and the theater of it. You don't necessarily have to buy into the whole philosophy. The problem is most of these young men, and at least in this era and group of people, they were all young men, seem to take their roles a bit too seriously. And that's what my story is about. All right. The band Mayhem was founded by Eistein Arseth, mm-hmm. Jorn Steberut, and Cheadle Mannheim in 1984. 
The high school students were fans of a lot of the heavy metal bands of that time, such as Motorhead, Black Sabbath, Slayer, and the British band Venom, from whom they took their name. Venom had a song called Mayhem with Mercy. Another Venom song also gave the name of the musical genre, Black Metal. Yorn and Sheetal had actually known each other since second grade. One of them I seen at an audition for a glam rock band when they were teens, and that's how they got together. Much later, when asked to define black metal in an interview in Orcustus, a fanzine, Eistein said, if a band cultivates and worships Satan, it's black metal. And death metal music is music that cultivates and worships death. Real death metal should be something normal people are afraid of, not something mothers can listen to. Death metal is for brutal people who are capable of killing. It's not for idiotic children who want to have a funny hobby after school, end quote. Mm. I watched Venom sing the song Black Metal on YouTube as part of my research. I found it very 80s and silly. I also watched a lot of other black metal songs in my research. I'm going to keep using the word silly to describe a lot of the aesthetic because that's the only word that seems to describe it for me. If the events in this story weren't so grave, it would be hard for me to take it seriously. And I'm just interrupting the story here because I want to say that I feel like there's a danger in labeling yourself as part of a movement that has a very specific aesthetic or rules. As an artist, you should just do what you want and not try to fit in. In all arts, but especially music, there seems to be a need to label and put things in categories. If a musician is not skilled or confident enough, they will end up conforming to the rules instead of growing as an artist. That's mm -hmm. my TED Talk for today. Yeah, thanks. I think a lot of things that happened in my story are illustrations of young people trying to push the limits to prove they were the baddest. And young people who are trying to fit into this movement are being morbid or obsessed with evil and death. And I think other things that happened were due to mental illness that people didn't understand or care about. Mayhem did a few live shows and hung out a lot, but didn't record too much. Just some demo recordings, and there were some live recordings from the early days, but they didn't release a studio album until 1994, after two of the band members were dead. Hmm. Spoiler, sorry. The band did a lot of live shows, and when they first started, like many teenage bands, they played a lot of cover songs from bands they admired. But they soon started writing their own material, with Eistein doing the writing and the lead singing. The early band members later said they were still learning to play the instruments in the beginning, just like a lot of bands that age. In 1986, they recorded a demo with the title Pure Fucking Armageddon. The band also put out an EP in 1987 called Death Crush. And for those who don't know, EP stands for Extended Play. Back when recordings were on vinyl, we had 45s and LPs. 45s had one song on each side. LP stands for long play, and they would usually have five to seven songs on each side depending on the length of the song. An EP might have four or five songs total. And they were smaller. They were kind of in between. And a lot of smaller bands, like local bands, would do EPs. There were a lot of personnel changes to the band Mayhem in its first years that I'm not going to get into. But in the beginning of 1988, they took on a new lead singer, Per Olin, who went by Pella. Pella was from Sweden, and a couple years earlier, he'd been in a Swedish thrash metal or death metal, whatever, band named Morbid. Pella didn't think Morbid was going anywhere, so he asked around and heard that Mayhem was looking for a lead singer. Now, again, let me remind our listeners of the time period. This was the late 1980s, no internet, but there was TV, 
and there are ways to share video recordings and audio tapes with people. And I remember here in the United States, there were local versions of MTV back then and local band videos and stuff were on them. And I'm not sure if that was the case in Scandinavia, but it wouldn't surprise me. And although it's hard to remember, even for someone who spent more than the first half of my life without the internet, Mm. there are ways to spread the news about things through word of mouth. And in those days, there were a lot of homemade publications called fanzines or just zines that were sold at record stores and passed around. Mm. And they would have little, you know, they were homemade and photocopied. But in some ways, it was more fun. Yeah. Because you had to find ways to engage and interact with people in order to spread the news about. I know, like doing my research brought back a lot of memories of that time. Anyway, Pella heard that Mayhem was looking for a vocalist. He made up a package to send to the band with a demo cassette, a note, and a dead mouse, and he Uh. mailed it off. Some reports said the mouse was crucified on a cross made of sticks. This may or may not be true. The mouse was probably already dead, I think, but oh. he did put it on a little cross oh. and mailed it off. Pella was in Sweden. When the band members got the small package, the smell was pretty strong. Apparently, Jorn Stubberud, a.k.a. Necrobutcher, <laughs> threw out the note and rotting mouse carcass, but kept the tape and listened to it. He liked what he heard. Luckily, Pella had put his contact information on the tape, not the mouse. Some reports said Yorn put the mouse in the packaging with the note in the bed of his truck and listened to the tape in his tape deck. And the the mouse in the note blew away when he drove off. Even though Pella was only about 18 when he recorded the demo, he had a deep, scary voice. Just what the band was looking for. And as I said, I listened to what I could find of songs with Pella singing. His voice is deep and croaky, kind of like Master of the Crypties. Can I? I can't really do it, but I guess that's what they wanted. Per and Gave Olin was born January 16, 1969, in Vaster in Sweden. His parents were Anita Forsberg and Lars Olin. As I said, his nickname was Pella, and I'll call him by his nickname throughout the episode. He had a younger brother and sister and a younger half-brother. In a lot of my research, the young men are referred to by their stage names. I'm trying not to do this because I feel like one of the issues is that they all took their personas a little too seriously. Well, not all of them, but most of them. They play characters on stage and some of them let that spill over into their own lives. But you have to remember they were all very young at the time. Pella's parents divorced when he was a baby. Well, it said when he was a baby, but I think he was at least five because he has a younger full brother who's five years. So he was young. Pella once told Slayer magazine, my mom told me when I was a baby, I slept so intensive, so I turned white. So she had to check me all the time to see if I were still alive. This may or may not be true. I don't know. In the book, Blood, Fire, and Death, The Swedish Metal Story, 2013, by Ika Johansson and John Jefferson Klingberg, Pella's brother Anders tells a story of how Pella was at who he thought was his best friend's house when he was a little kid. Then the kid's mother told Pella he had to leave because it was time for the boy's birthday party. That's kind of sad, don't you think? Pella was a quiet boy, introverted, and I guess he was kind of odd. He was bullied relentlessly by schoolmates by the time he got to middle school. When he was about 14, Pella was severely injured with a ruptured spleen. 
He was rushed to the hospital and was reportedly clinically dead during surgery. Pella told his family that this injury happened because of an ice skating accident. But Pella's brother Anders later said that the injury was caused by a beating suffered at the hands of other kids. Even later, Pella would tell friends it was either the skating accident, a fall through the ice, or that he ate poisonous mushrooms or whatever. He didn't want people to know he'd been bullied. He was a little ashamed to admit it. This incident is cited in a lot of my research as the reason Pella became obsessed with death. My opinion is that Pella had issues long before his injury. He would have become obsessed with something. I don't even know if he was really clinically dead or if that was something that was later speculated upon. Pella did tell at least one friend about it later. In a letter to his friend, and I saw photos of some of Pella's letters, and he seems to have written them in English. So when I'm reading it, this is his exact word. So sometimes they're a little funky, but it's because of his English. And his letter was to his friend, Nicola Curry. He said, I had a weird experience once. I had inner bleedings and it couldn't be found at x-rays. So when it continued to bleed and bleed, I finally fainted and dropped down the floor because I run out of blood. The heart had no blood left to beat and my veins and arteries were almost emptied of blood. Technically, I was dead. At that moment, when I fell down into a door I heard of later, I saw a strange blue color everywhere. It was transparent, so I could, for a short moment, see everything in blue, till something shining white and hot surrounded me. What happened later is out of interest. I woke up when some ambulance men came and drove me to a new hospital, where the bastards of surgery started to cut me up on the wrong side, and I got a huge scar for that. However, as someone I know who's had many out-of-body experiences, is using magic of various kinds, and knows much more than I do of supernatural experiences, that I asked of this because it was so strange about those colors. She told me the first plane in the astral world is the color blue. The earthly plane has the color black. Then comes a gray one that is very near the earthly one and is easy to come to. The next one further is blue and it gets brighter and brighter till it stops at a white shining one that can't be reached by mortals. If any mortal enter it, that one is no longer a mortal and cannot come back to the other planes nor back to this earth. After the white plane or level or whatever, it goes further with the other colors that I don't know of. There are only spirits and great sorcerers can travel. I was told that the white plane I then entered without I knew it was the dead world and I died. But I also got thrown back after a short time, which very rarely happens. So of what I've heard of, I have some kind of purpose to achieve here. That happened for almost eight years ago. And I'm trying to find out what I have to do here before I can enter the light again. End quote. In another letter to Nick Pella said, my goal in life is to visit Transylvania and Moldovia and learn everything of the legends there that rarely are known of in the West. Pella was constantly on the lookout for obscure, out-of-print books. Long after his death, Pella's parents would get calls from booksellers looking for him, as they had the book he was looking for, I guess. There were a lot of contradictory descriptions of Pella's personality. Some say he was shy, others say he was talkative. Some say he never drank, but others said he did. I think the difference is probably where he was and who he was with. When he first came to Norway, he and his new bandmates communicated mostly in English. He had a hard time understanding people, especially Eystein, who spoke a different dialect. 
I think some of the reticence people describe may have had to do with Pella's shyness and possibly inability to understand the language or his reluctance to try to speak the language. You mean Norwegian? Yes. He did speak it, but I think he had a hard time. And people would say, oh, you'd ask him a question and he wouldn't answer. You know, and I think it's just he was, first of all, shy, but also I think he just didn't feel comfortable. And you know how people will infer things. Yes. For a young man with fragile mental health, the gothy, satany, shocking nature of heavy metal, death metal, and thrash metal must have been appealing. Finally, here was a group of people who would embrace his weirdness his fixation with death, or if not embrace it, tolerate it and not call him weird or not treat him like he was weird. Pella founded the band Morbid in Sweden when he was 17. Morbid's demo tape was titled December Moon. Pella told people he didn't think the band was going anywhere. And that's when he sent the dead mouse and tape to Mayhem. He had heard they were looking for someone. In late 1987 or early 1988, depending on the source, Pella moved to Norway to become Mayhem's lead vocalist. When Pella first came to Norway, he relied on the kindness of relative strangers. He couch surfed and lived in vacant houses or whatever he had to do. His dad stopped sending him money when he found out Pella wasn't spending it on food, but rather on demo recordings. And he got very, very skinny, too. Pella took his dead persona to heart. He painted his face white with black around his eyes to look like a corpse. According to the band's drummer, Jan Axel Blomberg, known as Hellhammer, Pella was the first black metal musician to use corpse paint. This is, of course, not true because there are photos of Einstein wearing that type of paint in 1985, which was before Pella was in the band. Also, he definitely wasn't the first rock or metal musician. Alice Cooper was the first. And then there was Kiss. And even Ozzy Osbourne used to wear this heavy eyeliner that dripped down his face. Bob Dylan, when I saw him in 1975 with the Rolling Thunder Review, was wearing white face paint. Oh, yeah. He wanted to look like a kabuki dancer. In an interview, Yorn said it wasn't anything to do with the way Kiss and Alice Cooper used makeup. Dad actually wanted to look like a corpse. He didn't do it to look cool, end Mm. quote. And I was like, yeah, okay. Good thing. (laughs) Pella took his dead act to extra levels. Jan Axel Blomberg said before the shows, dead used to bury his clothes in the ground so they could start to rot and get that grave scent. He was a corpse on stage. Once he even asked us to bury him in the ground. He wanted his skin to become pale, end quote. If Pella happened upon a dead animal, roadkill or whatever, he'd pick it up and keep it. On one tour, he found a dead crow and kept it in a plastic bag. He'd open the bag and stick his nose in before performing so he could go on stage and sing, quote, with the stench of death in his nostrils. There are other anecdotes along this line. He'd sniff dead animals when he was in the studio, too, according to some sources. Pella would keep dead geese and other animals under his bed, which I'm sure endeared him to his roommates. There are other instances of Pella either killing animals or making use of dead animals. Here's a quote from a letter to a friend. You don't need to know who he's talking about to get the gist of it. By the way, Corthon got a present from me too. On the date of 1687, me and Schizo walked up to Electra, a studio, and leave the rehearsal tape and an upside down cross with a nailed guinea pig head on it huh. and tied, meaning blindfolded eyes, with spikes through the eyes. And he has like an exclamation point. The guinea pig was so nice and the smell was wonderful. We leave it to the receptionist girl and told her to leave it to Ace Forsberg a Bathory. 
A few days later, we called Borgia, the boss on the records, Corthon's father. He liked the band, but not the present. We all took this thing too seriously, he told us. But I think we'd not. Seriously, we think Corthon is a poser, like Celtic Mephisto in them, end quote. Not surprisingly, the recipients of the guinea pig head, who are Quorthon and his dad, called Pella and his friend the sickest people we ever met, mm. which I'm sure they took as a compliment. In the book Lords of Chaos by Diedrich Soderlund and Michael Moynihan, <laughs> Bard, <laughs> Bard, different, different Michael Moynihan. Bard Ethan, a.k.a. Faust, said, I remember one night he was trying to sleep. A cat was outside his apartment, so he ran outside with a big knife to get the cat. The cat ran into a shed, and he went after it. Then you heard lots of noise and screaming, and there was a hole in the shed where the cat came out again. And Dead ran after it with his big knife, screaming, hunting the cat, only dressed in his underwear. That was his idea of how to deal with a cat. Mm. John Christensen, a.k.a. Metal Lion, said in the book The Slayer Mag Diaries that he thought Pella pretended that the cat was too clever to be caught and is chasing it around with a knife was just an act. Quote, that's important for me to remember. He drew a line, end quote. Growing up, Pella loved animals and often drew pictures of them. He was a member of the Nature and Youth Organization as a child. Pella would cut himself both on and off stage. At one show, he had a knife, but Yorn made sure that the knife was dull so he couldn't cut himself. When the knife didn't work, Pella smashed a beer bottle and used the broken glass to slash his arms, spraying blood on the audience. And he cut like an, I don't know if it was an artery or what, but he was like, it was really bad. Pella got bandaged up with rags and electrical tape provided by a janitor and finished the song. Pella told Slayer Magazine, something I study is how people react when my blood is streaming everywhere, but that's not why I do it. That I can't do it too often, which makes me a bit mourning, and he means mourning like he's mourning, you know, with a U. Pella also said that he liked to spray the fans with his blood and see who stayed and who left because they were, quote, the true fans. Yorn later said that Pella liked to fuck with people. As an example, he said how Pella would tell a story about how once he bled on the fans and a bunch of people left. Yorn said they left because the show went on too long and they had trains to catch, not because they were sprayed with blood. But Yorn said Pella loved to exaggerate with interviewers and others. Yorn said he never saw Pella cut himself off stage, but other people said otherwise. Per Ewer Spadivafeld, who founded the band Kempfar in 1994, his stage name's Dolk, told The Guardian in 2019 that the group was at a party once and Pella, quote, started to cut himself with a knife. We were so used to it, we put him in handcuffs and left him lying in the corner. He didn't stop drinking. Later, we drove into town and left him in front of the police station just to make sure he didn't do more stupid stuff to himself and then went on partying, end quote. John Christensen, a.k.a. Metal Lion, also told the story of that party in the book Blood, Fire, and Death. He talked about how Pella and Thomas Lindbergh, the front man for the band Grotesque, met and bonded at a New Year's Eve party in 1989 hosted by John. Quote, Pella and Tampa together would result in complete chaos. They sat in my parents' bedroom cutting themselves with blades. It looked terrible in there. We had to throw away everything with bloodstains. He, meaning Pella, tipped over a big table full of beer bottles in the living room. And then he tried to smash the big window facing the garden. 
According to John, that was when they gathered Pella up and brought him to the police station. He said to get the cuffs removed. Pella didn't remember any of it the next day. Thomas, or Tampa, as he's called in the quote, himself said, Metal Lion's parents weren't home. So me and Dad sat on their bed drinking his mom's champagne. We were having intense discussions. We're going to Transylvania tonight, you and me, Tampa, he said. Somewhere in that fog, I remember thinking, no, I don't think we'll be doing that this evening. I remember it ended up with me hiding in Metal Lion's room, not because Pella was aggressive, but because he was totally fixed on the notion that we were undertaking this great journey together since we were so close. The band would also get pig and sheep's heads from a butcher, the father of a friend. They stuck them on stakes at the front of the stage as they performed. They had been doing this for years before Pella came, but he embraced it, loving the dead animals as he did. They would toss the heads into the audience sometimes. Sounds like a fun show. In an interview in Slayer, the fanzine, Pella recalled, before we began, there was a crowd of about 3,000 in there. But in the second song, Necrolust, we began to throw around those pig heads. Only 50, he means of the audience, were left. If someone doesn't like blood and rotten flesh thrown in their face, they can fuck off. And that's exactly what they do, end quote. (laughs) 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 The Wikipedia entry, one of them, mentioned that Pella made an appearance in a 1986 video by Candlemas called Bewitched. I can't tell if the video is supposed to be ironic or serious, but it's very, very silly. It's this guy getting out of a coffin and uh, I can't. Well, I'm going to put a link. link. Yeah. Yeah. There are several blonde guys with long hair in the video, so I'm not sure which one Pella is. I tried, but couldn't tell. All those Swedish and Norwegian guys. I've seen a few photos of him. There are some online. I can post them. I will say the lead singer of Candlemas has a good, he does have a very good voice. And the song is now in my head. He's like, you are bewitched. And then he points to people. There's also a video of Mayhem's song, Death Crush, and it has a video in the beginning before the song starts of Pella without makeup kind of playing around in their, I think it's around their house. And he looks just like a regular, nice young man, just looks like a shy guy. Some friends and acquaintances describe Pella as strange, depressed, introverted. Jan Axel Blomberg said Pella was a very strange personality, depressed, melancholic, and dark. Cheidel Mannheim, who had been the drummer for Mayhem before Jean Axel Blomberg, said Pella was like Marvin the Paranoid Android, a character created by Douglas Adams, who wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which spawned many sequels in radio and TV shows. Just to give you an idea, here's a quote from Marvin the Paranoid Android from the radio show Fit the Twelfth. I didn't ask to be made. No one consulted me or considered my feelings in the matter. I don't think it even occurred to them that I might have feelings. After I was made, I was left in a dark room for six months. And me with this terrible pain and all the diodes down my left side. I called for succor in my loneliness, but did anyone come? Did they hell? My first and only true friend was a small rat. One day it crawled into a cavity in my right ankle and died. I have a horrible feeling it's still there. So that gives you an idea of what Marvin, the paranoid android's Mm -hmm. personality, although I don't agree with his name. I haven't read any Douglas Adams in years, but he seems more depressed than paranoid. Mm -hmm. Bard Ethan, whose stage name was Faust, the drummer for the band Emperor, said, Dad wasn't a guy you could know very well. 
I think even the other guys in Mayhem didn't know him very well. He was hard to get close to. I met him two weeks before he died. I'd met him maybe six to eight times in all. He had lots of weird ideas. I remember Arseth was talking. Arseth is Eisting. Arseth was talking about him, and he said he did not have any humor. He did, but it was very obscure. Honestly, I don't think he was enjoying living in this world, which of course resulted in the suicide. Stein Johansson, otherwise known as Occultus, who was Mayhem's vocalist after Pella died, said he, meaning Pella, didn't see himself as human. He saw himself as a creature from another world. He said he had many visions that his blood was frozen in his veins, that he was dead. That is the reason he took that name. He knew he would die. And some of the things I read, people said that he had, they thought that Pella had it's called Codard's delusion or Codard's syndrome, where a person thinks they're dead or they're convinced that they're dead and they're like walking around dead. That is not in itself a mental health diagnosis that comes with other forms of mental health problems like psychosis or schizophrenia. That's not a thing that stands alone, but people like to say it. In the documentary, Once Upon a Time in Norway, Anders Aden from the band Cadaver claimed Pell buried himself in a coffin for three days to get death fungus under his eyes. Huh. That sounds pretty unlikely because I don't see how he could be buried for three days. But Pell did ask people to bury him in the ground. I just don't think he got any takers. As for Eistein Arseth, a.k.a. Euronymous, he said, I honestly think dead is mentally insane. What other way can you describe a guy who does not eat in order to get starving wounds or who has a T-shirt with funeral announcements on it? Yes, Pella used to clip funeral announcements and obituaries out of the newspaper and pin them to his shirt. Pella's personality depended on who you talked to. Yorn, who called Pella his, quote, little brother, was asked if he thought Pella was depressed. He said, no, I usually picture him smiling from ear to ear. Such a happy guy. In his book, The Death Archives, Mayhem 1984 to 1994, Jorn Stuber said, Pella wasn't a gloomy guy at all, but he was very introverted. And I think Jorn Stuber, he was the bass player, Necro Butcher. I might change my name to Necro Butcher. Yeah, I think it would work. Um, He seems like he really knew him the best and was the nicest to him. Although Eistein and Pella were in a band together and lived together, they weren't exactly friendly. People who knew the two men said that Eistein seemed fascinated by Pella's death obsession and self-destructive behavior. Eistein thought it helped Mayhem's image as a badass evil band, the most shocking and extreme. He used to, like, encourage him to cut himself and stuff. Chettle Mannheim said, I don't know if Eistein did it out of pure evil or if he was just fooling around. Although Eistein and Pella were in a band together and lived together, they weren't exactly friendly. People who knew the two men said that Eistein seemed fascinated by Pella's death obsession and self-destructive behavior. Eistein thought it helped Mayhem's image as a badass evil band, the most shocking and and extreme. Chettle Mannheim said, I don't know if Eistein did it out of pure evil or if he was just fooling around. Some people said Eistein would encourage Pella to commit suicide. It's not clear if he was really serious or if maybe he didn't take Pella's suicidal stuff seriously. Like I can see someone repeatedly saying they want to kill themselves and someone else saying not really seriously. Yeah, sure. Go ahead and do it. Mm -hmm. Just because they were sick of hearing about it and didn't think the person was serious. I'm not saying it's a nice thing to do, but Eistein didn't seem like a nice person. 
Once you hear more about Icene Arseth's personality and behavior, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that he really did want Pella to kill himself. The band's house has been described as an old house in the forest, but it was actually a nice house owned by the parents of some of the boy's friends. And it kind of sits over as a lake or something. It's like over the water. It's really nice. I saw it online. Somebody posted, like, oh, look what house is for sale. I have the uh, link. Okay. It's been fixed up, I'm sure, since then, because it's been 30-something years. But even then, I read that it was a pretty nice house. It had like a gym and stuff in it. Even so, the boys were poor, relying on welfare, stealing food from stores, and eating spaghetti with ketchup on it. Oh. The Christmas of 1991 was the last time Pella went home to see his family in Sweden. Pella and his dad looked at art school brochures, and some of Pella's friends say that Pella was seriously thinking of returning to Sweden and doing some gigs with his former band, Morbid. Pella's brother Anders didn't think that Pella would have returned to Sweden, quote, with his tail between his legs. One friend thought that Pella's dad was pushing him to move home, and it was the dad who had filled out the applications to art school. Anders said that Pella felt His fellow band members didn't care much anymore about the band and that he, Pella, was the only one really invested and it made him sad. Eistein was a perfectionist, making the band write and rewrite music until, as he said, it could be rewritten no more. This annoyed Pella. Things were taking way too long, he complained to his pen pal Nick. Jorn seemed to feel the same way. He said in Terrorizer magazine, he, meaning Eistein, was concentrating more and more on his record label. And I was starting to rehearse more and more with other bands because I need to practice a lot. He didn't care too much about mayhem anymore. He was burned out. He wasn't into the band thing anymore. He was just making money with DSP, meaning Death Like Silence Productions, his production company. We were even considering kicking him out of the band. He was talking about Eistein, not Pella. Jan Axel Blomberg was getting tired of Eistein trying to tell him how to dress, not black metal enough because he was like a glam rocker, and trying to keep him from drinking. Eistein told people he only put up with the drummer because he was talented, but any metal band would have been happy to have Jan Axel. I guess a lot of people thought he was a really good drummer. As roommates, Pella and Eistein did not get along. Jan Axel, the third roommate, said that Pella just sat in his room and became more and more depressed. Varg Vikernes, a later member of the band, and there'll be more on him later, said that Pella didn't seem comfortable talking when Eistein was around and only came out of his room to get food or when Eistein wasn't home. And that really isn't all Pella did. He didn't just sit in his room because during this time period, the band was writing the music for their album, De Mysterious Don Sathanas, and Pell wrote most of the lyrics. Jan Axel said that once Pella got so annoyed with the synth music that Eistein was playing, that Pell decided to go sleep in the woods. He took his pillow and went outside. Eistein followed him outside and shot a gun in the air just to piss him off. Then, according to legend, Pell threw a rock at Eistein that hit him in the chest, injuring him. Some reports say that Jan Axel had moved out and into his grandmother's home by the time of Pella's suicide. This wouldn't be surprising. I'm sure he didn't like living in the home with two roommates who were at each other's throats. Eistein prodded Pell, teased him, and manipulated him. Others around them insisted that Eistein thought Pella was brilliant, and he probably did. And even though Eistein himself was also admired as smart and talented by those around him, he was narcissistic and controlling. Others thought that Eistein was envious of Pella and wanted to be the only talented and brilliant one. Mm. And don't forget, these were pretty much kids. They were barely out of their teens when they first met. 
Pella left this suicide note. And one thing I read said it was translated from English to Swedish. I don't know if it was or not, because he seemed to write a lot of stuff in English, but I'll read it to you. It's sad. Excuse the blood, but I have slit my wrists and neck. It was the intention that I would die in the woods so that it would take a few days before I was possibly found. I belong in the woods and have always done so. No one will understand the reason for this anyway. To give some semblance of an explanation, I am not human. This is just a dream, and soon I will wake. It was too cold, and the blood kept clotting. Plus, the new knife was too dull. If I don't succeed in dying to the knife, I will blow all the shit out of my skull. Yeah, I do not know. I left all my lyrics by Let the Good Times Roll, plus the rest of the money. Whoever finds it gets the fucking thing. As the last salutation, may I present Life Eternal. Do whatever you want with it, Pella. And then at the bottom, he says, I didn't come up with this now, but 17 years ago. So Pella was referring to the lyrics to the song Life Eternal, which he attached to a suicide note. His note implied he'd been thinking about dying since he was five. So his depression was lifelong and untreated. And the way he acted out, the self-harm, the extreme behavior was never really addressed. And stick a pin in that because we will talk about that later. Pella was buried in Stockholm on April 26, 1991, when he found his roommate after buying the camera. Eystein rearranged the gun and knife to make sure the photo had a better composition. Jorn Stubberode, the band's bassist, later recalled, Eystein called me up the next day and says, Dad has done something really cool. He killed himself. I thought, have you lost it? What do you mean cool? He says, relax. I have photos of everything. I was in shock and grief. He was just thinking about how to exploit it. So I told him, okay, don't even fucking call me before you destroy those pictures. But Einstein didn't destroy the photos, not at all. He actually used one of them as the cover of the live bootleg EP, The Dawn of the Black Hearts. Uh. Unfortunately, the photo of Pella's bloody dead body is ubiquitous on the internet. Not only that, people have made t-shirts out of it. It's really gross. You'd think it wasn't real if you're looking at it, if you right. know, you know. Einstein later said in a radio interview, it isn't every day that you get to see a corpse, so you have to make the most out of it. In the sepulchral voice, Einstein said, when dead blew his brains off, it was the greatest act of promotion he ever did for us. It's always great when someone dies. It doesn't matter who. After Pella's body was removed, Einstein reportedly picked up pieces of the skull, which he later used to make necklaces he gifted to people. In 2018, there was an online listing for one of them, which is gross, if that's really what it was. The skull story is true. I mean, it's been confirmed that he had pieces of skull and made them into necklaces. Along with the skull fragment that sold, so I saw the listing online. If you search for it, you'll see it. it was a letter written by Einstein to the recipient. At the end of the note, he says, okay, that should be all. I'm enclosing a little piece from Dead's Cranium in case you'd like to have it. Hear from you soon. Jorn Stubberud, or Necro Butcher, was so disgusted with Einstein that he left mayhem. Einstein told everyone through interviews and zines and just in conversation that Pella killed himself because black metal had become too commercialized and Pella was disgusted with it. This wasn't really true. Of course, Pella had all sorts of plans on how to make the band more successful. Pella's letters to friends discussed promotion ideas for the band, how to become more successful, distribution ideas and sales numbers. And also when he wrote to his friend Nick, 
he would talk about stuff like that. And when he first wrote that letter with the dead mouse, apparently the letter he wrote to them had all sorts of ideas about how he could, you know, make the band successful. According to Varg, Varg Vickerness, who was one of the guys that hung out with them, Ice Team once chastised two of the band Dark Thrones members when they showed up at the Mayhem House wearing jogging pants. After Pella's suicide, Eistein said Pella's hatred of jogging pants, posers, and people who liked peace and love were some of the reasons he killed himself. Rumors swirled, probably started by Eistein himself, that Eistein had made a stew with Pella's brain and had eaten it. Eistein even hinted that he may have killed Pella himself and wouldn't deny it if asked. And of course, the internet being what it is, there are still rumors that Pella was murdered. And I'm pretty sure he wasn't murdered. And even if he was, it doesn't really matter now. Yeah. He, he was clearly, clearly depressed and suicidal. Yeah. Another rumor that went around was that Eistein had planned to go away, spending time at Mannheim's house to give Pella a chance to kill himself. Eistein said that Pella talked about suicide before, but it's not clear if Eistein took Pella's talk seriously. Pella's brother Anders said that Pella had attempted to kill himself several times before he succeeded. Eistein used the notoriety of Pella's death to raise Mayhem's public image and bolster the black metal genre's reputation of being sick and evil and scary. With Pella dead and Yorinoff in a huff, there were two members of Mayhem left. Eistein, who was Euronymous, he was lead guitar, and Jan Axel Blomberg, Hellhammer, the drummer. For a short time, Stein Johansson, whose stage name was Occultus, was lead singer. That is until Eistein threatened to kill him, so he quit. Eistein often said he was going to kill people who wouldn't do what he wanted them to do. A couple months after Pella's death, Eistein, with the help of his parents, opened a record store in Oslo called Helvete, which means hell in Norwegian. It's funny that these guys, you think of them as all these tough band members, but they all had their parents helping I know. Them. In the shop's basement, black metal musicians would hang out. Besides Eistein and Hellhammer, members of other black metal bands came by. Schnorre Rusch a.k.a. Blackthorn of the band Thorns, Thomas Hagen, a.k.a. Samoth from the band Emperor, and Varg Vikernes, a.k.a. Count Grishnak from Burzum, <laughs> who was his own one-man band. At various times, some of these guys would live in the building. Bard Gilvik Ethan, a.k.a. Faust, the drummer from the band Emperor, also worked at Helvita while living there. The walls were painted black, and the place was decorated with medieval weaponry, band posters, and scary Halloween-y type stuff like fake tombstones, etc. According to Stein Johansson, the building was far too big and the rent was too high. That's the reason it never did well, end quote. I think Stein is mistaken about that being the only reason. And mm. the Wikipedia footnotes, there's an excerpt from a blog post quoting Eistein. The quote was from 1992, but it's on an Angel Fire blog, which didn't exist back then. So I'm assuming this was taken from a fanzine interview or something about his new record store. He also did a lot of radio interviews, so it might have been from that. He says, well, the original idea was to make a specialist shop for metal in general, but that's a long time ago. Normal metal isn't very popular anymore. All the children are listening to death metal now. I'd rather be selling Judas Priest than Napalm Death, but at least now we can be specialized within death metal and make a shop where all the trend people know they will find all the trend music. This will help us earning money so we can order more evil records to the evil people. But no matter how shitty music we have to sell, we'll make a black metal look on the shop. 
we've had a couple of actions in churches lately, and the shop is going to look like a black church in the future. We've also thought about having total darkness inside so that people will have to carry torches to see the records. You may notice his promotion ideas and marketing skills were a bit lacking, like <laughs> having it dark inside. Yeah. But also, I looked up Napalm Death, and they seem a lot more extreme than Judas Priest, so I wonder if there was something lost in the translation, because I would assume he would prefer to sell Napalm Death over Judas Priest, because yeah. Judas Priest is more commercial, but whatever. And I'm not sure what he meant by church actions, but it's in quotes, and I wonder if it was people protesting his shop. Mm. Oh, that could be. He wishes. Eistein also started his own record label, as I referenced before, named Death Like Silence Productions. He released music from Mayhem, like I said, mostly live stuff and demos, and the music of Swedish bands Merciless and Abruptum. John Christensen, a.k.a. Metal Lion, who wrote the fanzine Slayer, said that the group that hung out at Helvita was, quote, the creation of the whole Norwegian black metal scene, end quote. In the book Swedish Death Metal, published in 2008, Daniel Ekeroth wrote, Within just a few months, many young musicians had become obsessed with Euronymous and his ideas, and soon a lot of Norwegian death metal bands transformed into black metal bands. The band Amputation became immortal. Thou Shalt Not Suffer turned into Emperor, and Dark Throne swapped their Swedish-inspired death metal for a primitive black metal. Most notoriously, Old Funeral's guitar player Christian, later renamed as Varg, Verkinus, had already left the band to form his own creation, Burzum, end quote. Vagard Tveiden, stage name Inshan, also from the band Emperor, said, If you were trusted, if they knew you were serious in your views, you were accepted. As I did my research, I seen struck me as someone who is very self-absorbed to the point of being narcissistic. And those kind of people tend to say ironic things without any self-awareness. He liked to act elitist about black metal and his circle of followers, saying he wanted to keep it underground. But in an interview in 1993, he said, those who scream most about being an underground is often those who make so bad music that they don't have a chance to get big themselves. Hmm. I wouldn't mind making DSP big and earn a million as long as I don't change my ways of thinking and being. If there were one million black metal fans in the world, most of them would be jerks. But there would be really many true and brutal people as well. The bigger we get, the more we can manipulate people into thinking like us. Hmm. And I just want to note some of these quotes, like I said, are translated and some are verbatim. And he was speaking English in this interview, so that's why it sounds kind of funky, but you get his gist. He speaks better English than I speak Norwegian. There were also some recordings of radio interviews in which Einstein says, not everyone deserves to own Mayhem's records. Only a few people really deserve to have them. <laughs> but he figures other people might, you know, deserve it later. It's like, okay, bud. Einstein was born on March 22nd, 1968 in Egerson, Norway, which is a small town. I think it's in the south of the country. He was a good student and a polite boy. But that's about all I can find out about him, except that his mother reportedly had liberal political views. Einstein acted as a mentor to the younger musicians who came to Helvetta, like the musicians in the band Emperor and to Varg Vakernis. And they were all teenagers at the time. Some were like 13 or 14. And they said he was really nice to them and helpful. And they all idolized him too. So Varg Vakernis soon became the bass player of Mayhem, replacing Yorn. Even though Einstein helped Varg, who was five years younger than him, releasing Burzum's music and giving him a place in the band, the two young men often butted heads. 
Bard Ethan said, it sounds really silly, but I think there was a little bit of a contest between them to see who could be more evil. It created a very difficult situation, mm. especially for Euronymous, who wanted the glamour and the showbiz. With him, there was a lot of smoke, but not so much fire. Still, Eystein played guitar and the gong on some of Burzum's music. The two men spurred each other creatively, but also competed for the title of the most extreme. Eystein admired fascists and totalitarian leaders. He collected Eastern Bloc memorabilia. When he was a teen, he was a member of the Norwegian communist youth group called Red Ungdom, whose beliefs skewed towards Marxism and Leninism. He eventually left Red Ungdom, calling them a bunch of humanists. He said, as I hate people, I don't want them to have a good time. I'd like to see them rot under a communist dictatorship. I can't take anything he says. And I don't know if he really no. took it seriously. Jan Axel Blomberg said, Euronymous wanted to be the most extreme person. And he thought communism was very extreme. But in a letter Eistein wrote in the early 1990s, he said that almost all of the black metal bands in Norway are more or less Nazis. And he included mayhem in this group. However, the lyrics and message of the band didn't seem to espouse Nazism, and they had agreed when they started to be apolitical. So I will say, however, that some of the Mayhem song lyrics prior to Pella taking over the songwriting were really gross and misogynistic. Not surprising, given the sausage fest that the metal scene was and still is. Mm hmm. Eistein claimed to be religious and called himself a theistic Satanist. In an interview with Issa Landapera that was conducted in 1993, Eistein said, I believe in a horned devil, a personified Satan. In my opinion, all the other forms of Satanism are bullshit. Satanism comes from religious Christianity and there it shall stay. I'm a religious person and I will fight those who misuse his name. People are not supposed to believe in themselves and be individualists. They are supposed to obey and to be the slaves of religion, end quote. In Beat Magazine in 1993, he said, we praise evil and we believe blindly in a godly creature, just like a Christian. Scientists can't disprove religion, no matter how hard you try. You can't explain the universe. You can't leave out a religious belief. Both Eistein and Pella had originally liked Anton LaVey and Aleister Crowley, both famous Satanists, and you can Google them because I don't have yeah. time to explain. But both young men came to disdain them. Eistein said he would, quote, never accept any band which preaches Church of Satan ideas because they are just a bunch of freedom and life-loving atheists, and they stand exactly the opposite of me. When the Beat interviewer asked him what he thought of Crowley's, quote, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Eistein said, people shall do what we want them to do. We're against freedom and forced a band from Ruggeland in Norway, Beezlebub, to split up. In the documentary, Until the Light Takes Us, Varg said, to Arseth, everything was about image and he wanted to appear extreme. He wanted people to think of him as being extreme, the most extreme of them all. But he didn't want to be extreme, and he wasn't really extreme, mm. end quote. On June 6, 1992, the Fantoff Steva Church in Bergen burned down. The cause was determined to be arson. For those of you who don't know what a Steva Church is, and I had to look it up, 
They are Christian churches that date back to the Middle Ages. They're wooden structures with carved dragon heads and stuff on them. Some are really high and look almost like a bunch of roofs stacked on top of each other with a steeple on top. And they have roof shingles that look like reptile scales. They are truly beautiful. And the person who torches something like that is a fuckhead. Mm-hmm. The Fantoff Church dated back to the 12th century. It was destroyed by fire. During the next seven months into the winter of 1992-1993, at least seven more churches were set on fire. It wasn't uncommon for Stava churches to burn. Like I said, they were almost all wood. Poor wiring and lightning strikes happened, but this was obviously something else. In January 1993, Varg and Eistein came up with an idea to get some publicity for black metal. Varg gave an interview with Count Grishnak, supposedly anonymous, in which he not only admitted to the church fires, but for stabbing a man to death at Lillehammer. Varg was arrested before the newspaper, the Bergens Tedenda, even published the interview. Some other members of the Helvete group were also arrested, but released quickly because there was not enough evidence to hold them. Varg himself was released in March of 1993 because there wasn't enough evidence. Varg or Burzum, he was a one-man band. His band was Burzum, but he went by Count Grishnak, but his name was Varg. His next album came out with a picture of the burned-out carcass of a Stava church. I think it was uh, Fantoff. And the first thousand records were issued with a cigarette lighter. Right around that time, Kerrang!, a hard rock punk metal magazine, published an article about Norwegian black metal. Eistein and Varg were quoted in the article, of course, using their stage names. They hinted that they were leaders of a group of satanic terrorists. Eistein said his record shop, Helvita, helped fund this organization, but wasn't involved in any of the crimes. In 1993, Eistein was interviewed by a Swedish radio show. He said, they, meaning Christians, must feel that there is a dark, evil power present that they have to fight, which will make them more extreme. We, meaning the black metal guys, also believe that when a church burns, it's not only Christians who suffer, but people in general. Imagine a beautiful old Stava church. What happens when it burns? The Christians feel despair. God's house is destroyed. And ordinary people will suffer from grief because something beautiful was destroyed. So you end up spreading grief and despair, which is a good thing. In an interview earlier, Eistein said, the hardcore, meaning punk, pigs have correctly made themselves guardians of morality, but we must kick them in the face and become guardians of anti-morality. And a zine called Kill Yourself, Eistein said, there is nothing which is too sick, evil, or perverted. I have no problem killing someone in cold blood. Well, there was a lot of Satan and evil imagery in the genre. A lot of people agreed with Bard that Eistein was putting on an act. Cheadle Mannheim, the first Mayhem drummer, and one of Eistein's oldest friends said, Eistein was, quote, health-oriented, a nice guy, a family guy, but he would play out his role. Mannheim also said that as he got older, Eistein's personality changed. Quote, he liked telling people that they were worthless, that he was the best. He was all, I define black metal. Black metal is me. I think he was trapped in the image of mayhem. He became a megalomaniac. And the documentary Pure Fucking Mayhem, Chettel Mannheim said Eistein's daily life was total theater. After all the bad publicity following the church burnings, Eistein's folks made him shut down his record shop. The publicity was pretty bad, but I also suspect the sales were bad too. I'm sure if any of his business ventures were making money, they would have kept going. 
And this was in the spring of 1993 that happened. In the morning of August 10th, 1993, Eistein was found dead in the front stairwell of his apartment building in Oslo, stabbed multiple times. Mm. Rumors spread that the killers were members of the Swedish metal scene. There had been some kind of antagonism going on between the two groups, the Norway and kind of like the East Coast and West Coast rappers in Mm -hmm. the United States. But on August 19th, 1993, Varg Fikernes, the bass player of Mayhem, and Einstein's protege was arrested for murder. Varg said he had acted in self-defense. He said that Einstein was planning to kill him. Now, it was not unusual for Einstein to threaten to kill people. Jorn said that Einstein had sent or spoke death threats to a lot of people, including a death metal band that wore Hawaiian shirts. Hmm. Varg's version is this. Einstein told a few people that he was going to hit Varg with a stun gun, bind him, and torture him to death while videotaping it. Varg said in the dock until the light takes us 25 years after the event, if he was talking about it to everybody and at anybody, I wouldn't have taken it seriously. But he just told a select group of friends, and one of them told me. Varg said that Einstein lured him to Oslo on the pretense that Varg had to sign some contract. If you recall, Einstein published Varg's Burzum music. This is Varg's story in his words, as told in the 2008 documentary, Until the Light Takes Us. And he said this, he speaks very good English. And one thing I'm going to say about Varg, he's a very good looking guy. But of course, you know, all those, you know, Scandinavian guys are, no, they aren't all good looking, but a lot of them are tall, you know. The only reason he had come to me was a contract between Burzum and his label. So he sent me the contracts and wanted me to sign them. And he wanted me to meet when we were signing them. Okay, I saw no reason to wait. Let's just go to Oslo and get done with it. But of course, it takes some time to get to Oslo. You know, it's 500 kilometers of bad roads and mountains. It took some time to reach. He said he was sleeping. I told him, well, I don't care if you're sleeping. Open the door. And he opened the door, which is rather strange, really. You know, he just opened the door. And uh, even though he had plans to kill me and when he had his beeper out and when I got up in the apartment, he panicked because, you know, he probably he had plans to kill me. And he uh, I was aggressive, you know, so he panicked. He attacked me. He kicked me in the chest. I just threw him to the ground a bit stunned, really, because, you know, he attacked me. I didn't expect it at the time, and I was stunned for a while. He was just sitting on the floor, and suddenly he got up trying to uh, to get his knife in the kitchen. And I thought, oh, well, if he's going to have a knife, I'm going to have a knife. And I had a pocket knife, this small pocket knife. I got up and prevented him from getting it in the kitchen, and I was in, so he didn't manage to get his knife. And then he started off against, um, he started to run towards his bedroom where he kept a shotgun that Dead shot himself with, as well as an electroshock pistol. It turned out later on that he didn't have any of these things in the bedroom, but I believed it at the time. And that is the reason I followed him instead of going into the bedroom. He just left the whole building, really. He just started to run down the stairs, and I followed him. I managed to stop him. And, of course, I had a friend with me, actually the guitarist of Mayhem, and, of course, he was rather shocked. And I waited because I didn't know how he was going to He was the guitarist in the band. So for all I knew, he could have attacked me as well. Maybe they planned it, you know, you get a bit paranoid in situations like that. So I just wait for, for, for what's going to happen. I just waited. Arseth was on the floor. He broke a lamp on the wall. He was swimming in glass fragments and with all his underwear, he was rather bloody. And, um, this other guy just ran past me. And of course I understood that, that he did. Okay. It's not part of it. So after my, 
okay? Are you okay? He just ran off. And then I remember that he had my car keys and I had blood all over myself and Arseth got up and attacked me again. So I finished Arseth up. I just, and then he made a stabby motion. You know, when you say stab, chop, stabbed him in the skull. So he died immediately. And I followed the other guy, but he ran to the car. So I managed to calm him down. You know, he gave me the car keys and I opened the car, you know, and we drove back. So that's the end of his thing. And in the later blog post, Varg's story is a little different. He has a blog and we'll talk about that later. I don't know if he still does, but he did. He says, I gave chase. I stabbed him and was a bit surprised when he ran out of the apartment instead. It made no sense to flee, and it made me angry to know that he had started the fight, but the moment it didn't go his way, he decided to flee instead, instead of fighting like a man. Such is always something I have disliked strongly. He had showed his intention to kill me, and even though he was no longer a direct threat to me, there and then I did not feel any bad for killing him. His cowardice had made me angry, and I saw no reason to let him live, not when he had showed his intent to kill me. Had I let him live, I would only have let him have another attempt at my life later on. When Varg was sentenced, or when he was found guilty, not sure which, but he was in court, he turned and looked at the camera and smiled. This just cemented the public's opinion of black metal and the musicians who played it, that they're evil, you know, because of his smile. Regardless of whether it was self-defense or not, Varg stabbed Eistein 23 times, twice in the head, five times in the neck, and 16 times in the back. So a bit of a departure from his self-serving story. And it's funny how his story sounds like all the ones we've read. I know. You know. I was thinking that. Schnorra Rook, a.k.a. Blackthorn, who was the guitarist for Mayhem at the time, said that in the summer of 1993, he was having mental health issues and almost went to a mental hospital. Instead, he went to Bergen, which is like southwest of Oslo, and stayed with Varg. Snorri testified that Varg did plan the murder and made him go along. Snorra said, I was neither for it or against it. I didn't give a shit about Eistein. Varg said that Snorra came with him to show, you know, how he said, oh, I had to go there to, to sign this contract. He said Snorra came with him to show Eistein some new guitar riffs. It's like, yeah, right. That makes sense. Snorra was convicted and sentenced to eight years in prison for taking part. Although, according to him, he stood downstairs and smoked through the whole murder. Varg went to trial in May 1994. The prosecution, or whatever it's called in Norway, I don't know, said what happened was this. Varg, Snora, and an unnamed third person also planned the murder. On the night before the killing, Varg and Snora drove to Oslo. The third person stayed back in the apartment, rented movies, and used Varg's credit card to make it look as though he were still in Bergen. Varg had left the signed and dated contract at Einstein's apartment. So he's really bright. Varg's fingerprints were in blood at the scene. The police questioned all the teenagers that hung out at Helvita about the murder plot and also about the church burnings from the year before. An added bonus was that they found out all about the murder in Lillehammer. Remember, Varg said he had stabbed a man to death. This is what police found out, and this is what was used against Varg at his trial. Varg was getting tired of, of Eistein's controlling ways, and also his slowness at paying Varg's royalties from the burrs of music that was selling. Snorri, the guitarist from Mayhem, was staying with Varg. Snorri was on the phone with Eistein the day of August 9th, 
and Varg overheard the conversation about how Eystein wanted to kill Varg. Varg told Snorri that and the other roommate he was going to go confront Eystein and kill him. I think Varg's story is foolish. I don't think Eystein yeah. is like, oh, I think he's just like, oh, I get to You're kill right. him. The way Ugh. you say it. Well, the way he apparently said it all the time. The two other guys tried to talk Varg out of it, but he wouldn't hear it. They set out from Bergen to Oslo, but the drive was seven hours, so they got there in the early morning. Eystein was reluctant to let Varg in, but he did. Schnorri stayed downstairs. Varg and Eystein talked for a while before Varg attacked Eystein. During the struggle, Eystein broke a lamp and an artery in his foot got severed, and he also received several puncture wounds. It was a bloody scene. Varg McCurdy's trial began on May 2nd, 1994, and Varg was found guilty and sentenced on May 16th. He was convicted of murder, three counts of arson, one count of attempted arson, and those are for the church fires, and the theft and storage of explosives. He never acknowledged guilt for any of these charges except the explosives. Varg was given the maximum sentence in Norway, which is 21 years in prison. That's the maximum sentence they have there. The day of his sentencing, two churches were set on fire in the country by dumbasses mm. showing support. Varg was born February 11th, which is my daughter's birthday, yeah. 1973. His birth name was Christian, but he went by Varg. He was born and raised in Bergen. He started playing guitar at 14, and by the age of 16, he'd formed his own band, Kalashnikov. He played guitar for a few bands as a session musician, and as I said earlier, he recorded music as Burzum. Varg's mother worked for an oil company and his father was an electronic engineer. When Varg was six, the family moved to Iraq for a year. His father did some work for Saddam Hussein, supposedly. Varg went to school with Iraqi children. They said something about how the other school was full or something, so he went to a regular Iraqi school. He noticed he was treated differently because he was white. He said, though, the teachers at the school often resorted to corporal punishment that the teachers, quote, didn't dare hit me because I was white. As he grew up, Varg developed white supremacist and other extreme beliefs. His parents have said they don't understand how he got that way. Varg said in an interview in the book, The Lords of Chaos, that his parents were hypocrites. Varg's dad was upset that Varg had a Nazi flag in his room. But Varg said his dad was, quote, pissed about all the colored people he saw in town. Varg said his mom was worried that he was going to come home with a black girl. His parents divorced when Varg was 11 or 12, and he didn't maintain a close relationship with his father, though he was still close to his mother. While it's been reported that Varg was a skinhead as a teen, when he was asked in Lords of Chaos if he hung out with skinheads in Bergen, he answered, there were no skinheads in Bergen. Which I'm like, yeah, right. Also, I have to say, when he was a young man, he had super long, pretty hair, so if he was a skinhead... He didn't go as far as to shave his head. No. Growing up, Varg loved classical music, especially Tchaikovsky. In middle school, he started listening to heavy metal. Iron Maiden was his favorite mm. and an inspiration. He later denied ever liking the band Venom and said they were a joke. He loved Tolkien, too, as evidenced by his monikers. His first band changed from Kalashnikov to Yurik High, which is the name for a type of orc in the Fellowship of the Rings series. Mm. Orcs were the bad guys. Grishnak was also an orc, and the word Burzum is from the language in the Lord of the Rings, which means darkness. In 2020, on his blog, Varg wrote that he didn't really believe the black metal stuff back when he was a teen. He said he came under the influence of an absolute degenerate loser, Eystein, end quote. In 1993, after all the church burnings, two of the Black Circle, as the group called themselves, from Helvetia, 
interviewed Varg about the church burnings and brought the transcript of the interview to the Bergens Tenende, hoping the newspaper would print it. In the interview, Count Grishnak claimed to have burned the churches and killed a man in Lillehammer. A reporter from the newspaper, Finn Bjorn Tonder, contacted Varg, or Count Grishnak, if you will, wanting to set up a meeting in person. Varg and his buddies agreed to the meeting and set it up at an apartment. They warned the reporters that they would be shot if police were contacted. But police were contacted. In the interview, Varg and his friends said they either knew who burned the churches or they themselves had done the arson. They gave details that the reporters didn't know. So, of course, doing their due diligence as reporters, the police were called to check on the details, some of which happened to be information the police were withholding. In the interview, Count Grishnak said, our intention is to spread fear and devilry. That is why we are telling this to Bergens Tenende. The article was printed on January 20th, 1993. On the front page with the headline, We Lit the Fires, there was a photo of Varg, his face obscured by his hair, holding two knives. Police found an address on a Burzum flyer and found Varg at the place. He was arrested even before the article came out. When Varg was originally arrested for arson in early 1993, the press said he was a theistic Satanist. But in later interviews, Varg, though he denied burning the churches, had said the arson had nothing to do with devil worship. Instead, it was revenge for the Christians desecrating Viking graves. Varg said he was an Odinist, not a Satanist. When he was first in jail that spring, before being released due to lack of evidence, Varg said, it's much too nice in here. It's not hell at all. In this country, prisoners get a bed, toilet, and a shower. It's completely ridiculous. I asked the police to throw me in a real dungeon and also encourage them to use violence, end quote. It's like, Mm -hmm. well, maybe you should come to the United States, honey. Yeah, no shit. I mentioned before that Varg had been convicted of theft and possession of explosives. He had 150 kilograms of explosives, not sure what kind, and 3,000 rounds of ammunition in his home when he was arrested. It's been reported that he was planning on blowing up the Blitz house in Oslo. The Blitz house is apparently still around. It started out as a squatter's house for anarchist, communist, anti-fascist punk rockers. Now it's an established left-wing center. In 1993, it was still a squat house, but they were all a bunch of left-wing punks. One dumb theory that I heard is that Varg killed Eistein because he thought, since Eistein said he was a communist, that he would object to Varg's plan and try to stop. And so yeah, that's right. why Varg killed This theory doesn't make sense because Eistein wasn't so much a communist as he was a fascist, and he probably would have loved the plan. In any case, in a 2009 interview, Varg said he wasn't planning on blowing anyone up. He was just hoarding arms, quote, in order to defend Norway if we were attacked any time. Now, what about the guy that Var bragged he stabbed to death in Lillehammer? Well, there was actually a murder in Lillehammer committed by a black metal musician. The killer was Bard Ethan, a.k.a. Faust. 16-year-old Bard had been hanging around the Black Circle at Helvete for about a year, and he lived there and worked there. He had a fascination with Nazis and serial killers. He told a fanzine prior to the murder, he was a drummer before the murder, so they were interviewing him. It's interesting to know what actually made these people commit the crimes they have and what social background they have, etc. Besides, I love the gory details and pictures. On August 21st, 1992, Bard was in his hometown of Lillehammer when he stabbed Magne Andreasen to death. 
Bard was walking home late at night through a park that was set up for the upcoming Olympic Games when he passed Magnick, who propositioned him. Bard decided at the spur of the moment he wanted to kill the stranger. He acted like he did want to go in the bushes with him and have sex. So once they got in the bushes, Bard pulled out a knife and stabbed Magnet in the abdomen, neck, and back multiple times. I think one of the things I read it was over 30 times he stabbed oh, him. Oh, jeez. Then he rushed back to his mom's house and threw his bloody clothes in the wash. No one had seen him. No one in the park and not his mom. She was asleep. When he got back to Oslo the next day, he told Varg and Eystein about it. They were impressed and invited Bard to a church burning. On August 23rd, 1992, the Holman Coleman Chapel was burned. The police didn't know who could have done either crime. They had no clue. But after pressuring the kids at Helvete the next year, they found out. It's not clear what other evidence the police had for the church burnings. I don't know if it was just that they were told these three did it or if they were able to find other evidence that, that wasn't clear. But it was enough to convict Varg and Eistein probably would have gone to jail as well. Bard Eithun was sentenced to 14 years for the murder of Magna Andreasen. I'd like to tell more about the victim, but I can't read Norwegian and there really isn't much about it. But he was like a middle-aged guy cruising through the park. Mm -hmm. Poor guy. At Eistein's funeral, Jorn Stuberud, who's necro butcher, and Jan Axel Blomberg, Hellhammer, decided they would revive and continue the band Mayhem and finish the album that Eistein had started recording. In 1994, Demistrius Don was released. And sorry if I mispronounced it, all you metalheads. It was dedicated to Eistein, a.k.a. Euronymous. Eistein's parents didn't want the album released. They didn't want Varg's bass playing on the album with their son's guitar. The murderer and the victim on the same album. Jan Axel Blomberg, Hellhammer, assured them that he would re-record the tracks himself. The bass mm. playing tracks. But since he didn't play the bass, he was just bullshitting them. Right. And the album was released with Varg's bass playing right. on it. In the book, The Lords of Chaos, the guard Vieten, a.k.a. Ishan, said several years after Eistein's death, Quote, there's no discipline in the scene anymore, like earlier around in the shop. A cult developed around the memory of Euronymous. Also in the book, a friend of Eistein, Anders Odden, said, it wasn't odd that he ended up getting killed. He thought he could threaten to kill people without having any consequences. Mm. I think many people felt relief once he was gone. Another musician, Erlen Erickson, said, nobody was there to boss them about. The black metal police were gone. Varg continued his music and his right-wing extremism throughout his prison sentence and afterwards. He had a YouTube channel with a quarter million followers, but it was removed in 2019 because of his racist and misogynistic rants. But you can still find stuff online. I, I watched a few and I wished I could punch him in the face. Mm. He has also written a bunch of books, which I will never read. He's changed his name to Louis Cachet, but he still goes by Varg Vikernes. Barth Ethan also went back to music once he was released. In early 2019, a movie called The Lords of Chaos came out based on the book. It looks dumb and cartoonish from the clips I watch. To me, it seems to be glamorizing the idiocy of the genre. And maybe it's supposed to be campy. I don't know. But the suicide of one person and the murder of another in one band is not something to be flipping about. And don't forget, there was another murder victim, Magnus Andreasen and Lillehammer, murdered by Bard Ethan. 
The director of that movie, Jonas Ackerland, was the drummer for the band Bathory in the early 1980s, so he does at least remember some of it. He told The Guardian in 2019, the sound we created was a mix of what we liked and the whole punk thing, but playing it fast, which wasn't really what metal was about. Bathory's music was dominated by the lead singer Quarthon's voice. The Quarthon's the one that got the guinea pig head, which, like many of them, was a croaky wail. Jonas also directed that awful video, Bewitched by Candlemas, I saw. He was probably a teenager when he did that, and it looks like a teenager directed it. I'm not going to try to say this guy's Norwegian name again. His name, his stage name was Dolk, it was one of the founders of the band Kempfar, said, Christianity never suited Norway, and it never belonged here. The black metal scene reacted to that. We needed something to be opposite to. Jason Anop, who wrote the Kerrang! article back in the day, said, Black metal is a wonderful subgenre with very specific style. It sounds like evil, ranting demons laying waste to a snowy Scandinavian forest. It was atmospheric with a deeper approach than what the death metal scene was doing. You could travel within it. It was a way to express your inner demons. Varg Vikernis was none too pleased to find out a Jewish actor, Emery Cohen, was playing him in the movie. <laughs> of the movie, Varg said it was slanderous garbage. He said, I have never participated in a threesome in my life, which leads me to believe the movie is making the boy's sex life a lot more glamorous than it probably mm -hmm. was. The release of the movie caused a lot of looking back at mayhem. A lot of it can be taken with a grain of salt. There are a lot of people saying, oh, you don't know how scary and shocking they were. To some, probably, this was the satanic panic era, as I said. But I think most people either got into that stuff or ignored it. Or young people, anyway. I mean, there were people in my high school that liked that stuff. But they were just, you know. Rune Erickson, who took over as guitarist, his stage name is Blasphemer, or Blasphemer, hmm. when Mayhem reformed in 1994, told The Guardian in 2019, that period of my life is a swampy lake with skeletons in it. Jason Arnup said, these Norwegian kids were doing things that the mainstream folk might have assumed metal musicians did all the time. To say the least, this was not a good look for rock music. Ivor Bjornsson, who is a guitarist for the group Enslaved, said he was leaving a pub after celebrating his 16th birthday. A guy yelled, you fucking Satanist, and kicked him in the head. This was in the 1992-93, around the time of the church's burning. Rune Erickson said, the cops came to my parents' place late at night just to go through my room. I was 17. They were trying to find something that connected me to something. They left empty-handed, but they'd found some strange imagery on CDs, and they were nodding to each other like jackpot. On October 19, 2019, Jorn Stubberud said in an interview with Consequence of Sound, our buddy Per Olin decided to take his own life. I felt very sad about that, and I was kind of struck by sorrow for a long time. Still actually feel sorrow about that. But the first year was particularly bad, especially since my friend friend Euronymous took fucking photos of his corpse so that didn't help much with the grief i felt like we needed to go over and kill that i seen Euronymous backstabber but it's funny with the bad karma there because he went behind my back called the and got him to play bass on the album 
And then that was kind of bad karma, I guess, because we all know what happened to him. Okay, I can tell it right now because I've been holding it in for many years. But actually, I was on my way down to kill him myself. And when it happened, I saw the morning paper thinking, fuck, I got to get home to my place and get all these weapons and drugs and shit I had in my house because they're coming to my house because I'm probably going to be the number one suspect for this. But little did I know that the Norwegian police already knew that Count Grishnok was going down also to kill him because they bugged his phone and he actually talked about the killing before he went to Bergen. So the cops knew that he was coming. Actually, he must have met Oslo, but whatever. So they probably were thinking to themselves, we didn't nail this guy for the church burnings. So let's nail him for murder and get rid of this fucking guy in Oslo at the same time. So that's basically what happened. And then in a follow-up question to him saying he was going to kill Eystein. But yeah, okay, I'll tell you straight up. I wanted to kill that fucker in the end. Imagine that somebody you think is your friend coming home and finding your other friend killed themselves and took pictures of their dead body. Who the fuck in their right mind would do anything like that? Everybody should have a little bit of intelligence to know that. That it's got to be somebody completely stripped from empathy and normal emotions. And really a bad fucking person. But now he's a fucking hero. And it's like, okay, I've always talked good about him. Never wanted to talk bad about the dead. But this has gone too far now. I mean, if the guy wasn't killed, he would have gone to jail for many years for lighting up a church in Oslo. He'd be gone. He'd have been sued just like Varg the Kernis for 50 million. He would be released from jail. He would never have a job, never own a car, own a flat, own a TV. He would be fucked with a capital F. He's the big hero. No, he's a big fucking asshole. That's who he is. The betrayal. He betrayed his friends and the bad karma in the end came and took him. I never cried a tear for that guy. I was mad as fuck when he died. And what I told that journalist is when I read it in the morning paper, I headed straight home and cleaned my house for all the illegals. I was sure the cops were going to come to my place next and that I was going to be a suspect. I didn't know that they already knew who did it. And I'll tell you, since we're into this, Norway is a very small country. Varg Vikernes lit up a church, went to jail, and they couldn't get evidence. So they had to let him out. Big disappointment for the cops, a loss of prestige. So they bugged his phone, bugged his apartment, everything. And he was plotting to kill Euronymous on the phone and everything, making an alibi on the phone. But of course, they knew everything. So I was a little pissed at the cops later on because I'm thinking... They knew what was going on and they didn't even stop it. This is very fucking bad. You know what I mean? The government was in on killing him. So I never talked about it before. But now I'm thinking since the government isn't linked up to my ass now, it's starting to get down to earth again. And that's not the smart thing for me to do to make enemies again now that I've cooled again. But it's in me. I can't help it. Anything that wrong has to be right. I don't know if they bugged his phone or they would have. They probably would have stopped him. The seven hour drive. Yeah, I can't see them letting somebody get murdered just so they can arrest somebody for somebody getting murdered. I know. That Dolk guy, I don't want to try to say his name again, spite of old, said in 2019 about Eistein, he became too high on himself. I'm the leader. He thought he could control the whole Norwegian metal scene. I know for a fact that there were a lot of people talking about getting Eistein out of the scene. And by that, I mean getting rid of him. And when the person interviewing asked if he meant killing him, he said, yeah. But Per also told the Guardian, today we all find it kind of funny and sad at the same time. Take Ivar from Enslaved. 
Back then, we were writing stuff to each other that was so ugly, we had to look over our shoulders all the time. But today, we're the best of friends, and we're really embarrassed about all that stuff. A couple years ago, Kempfar won a Norwegian Grammy, and we were sitting there at the same table with Enslaved. We're the same guys that back then sent death threats to each other. And we're sitting here now in suits, drinking wine, eating fancy dinners. It was like, how crazy is this? I want to come back to Pele before I'm finished. Because of all the people in the story, he's the one I feel the worst for. I want to end with something that John Christensen, who is Medellin, wrote in the Slayer Mag Diaries, because I think it's pretty accurate. This is a quote. When he died, everyone was quick to assume that it was what he wanted. Yet nobody who said that was really aware. If people actually talked more seriously with him, maybe we would have better understood what he was going through. People thought he was different, and they just left it at that. I think that network of people around dead in Norway failed him completely. He was living in squalor with no telephone and no car. Because of that, I had much less contact with him than when he lived in Sweden. He wrote lyrics saying essentially that he didn't belong among the living. And people just agreed, even imitating by pretending that they felt the same way. I think they were just worshiping the dead character, not the person. That was just wrong. Imagine him being so young, like 20 years old, moving from Sweden to Norway, living with mayhem. They didn't have any money. They lived on nothing at all. So, of course, lots of dreams were crushed. In Norway, with everything going against him, he probably didn't see a future, end quote. And I think that that metal lion guy is right. My feeling about Pele is that he was extremely, extremely depressed and homesick, and nobody around him recognized that. And I don't think he was just this crazy guy that liked to slash himself. I think he was could have been mentally ill. Well, depression, I guess, is a mental illness. He could have had something more serious. But if anything, he was very, very depressed. Right. And then I... I seen. I seen. Thank you. Eggdemon. He was a narcissist. Yeah. They were all... I've always felt like that kind of music is it's not about music so it's, as far as their personas and stuff go yeah. Einstein's big thing was calling people posers I mm-hmm. always considered all of that posing yes you too. know it's a way for mostly males to act out and mm-hmm. be gross and violent mm-hmm. and say and do disgusting things and get away with it as quote-unquote art has always been my take when people who are mentally ill are involved in it and obviously their living situation and stuff just added to whatever depression and stuff he had. Where... And he didn't have anybody to, no. to recognize. I mean, that Yorn guy did feel close to him, but I don't think even he realized. I don't think a guy that age who is in that kind of mental anguish is going to get much empathy or support from other guys that age who are so worried about what everyone thinks of them right and their whole culture is to play it up and to encourage him and the only positive he was getting was to be encouraged in his and even the drinking people in sweden i think were saying oh he doesn't drink that he probably drank because that's everybody else was and if he's drinking to excess where he's doing destructive things that's another way of acting it's very sad but what i wanted to say too is that and you know most of the writing about them is as men writing and most of the things i read were fans of the you know people who really liked him were writing stuff so but apparently in interviews one thing i read said that they were very not just mayhem but those kind of bands are very homophobic very racist 
uh, white supremacist type of thing. And it didn't always get in print because, of course, you know, that's right. Not, but Varg, and I listened to some of his music and it sounds good. Apparently, a lot of people were impressed by his, his talent. And some British label wanted him to come record with them. And he was trying to leave. He, but he wanted his money from from Einstein. But he went to meet them, and apparently, once they met him, they did not like his political views because he's a wicked white supremacist. If you look online, there's still videos of him on there, and he says stupid shit about women's stuff too. It's like fuck you. Yeah, yeah I mean, he's I'm just an ass. I think Einstein was was one of those narcissists and stuff that people could see, but right. I think Varg was the kind that you can't really see. But the fact that you can stab someone 23 times for what? His story was sounded so fake yeah, when he yeah. was saying it. Bullshit. And like I watched the video of him telling whoever and he thinks it sounds plausible. Like that's the thing. People, they think it sounds plausible. It's like, no. Oh. you. He, why would he kick you in the chest for no right. reason? Even if he was planning on killing you, when you sh- why would he let you in then? Oh, right, shit. it didn't make sense. That was good. It's and interesting you that your daughter it. is familiar with that story. Well, she just knew. She told me to. Oh, Euronymous got murdered, and I'm like, oh, that sounds interesting. But I didn't know about poor Pele and his suicide. And but how does she even know who Euronymous? How does she even know who Euronymous? The internet. Oh, she doesn't listen to that kind of music, though. She said. Because I told her, I said, you know, I don't think you should be listening to that. That's just a lot of it's Nazi shit. And she's like, yeah, yeah it's and it's that. misogynist. So she told me today, like, I was listening to that. You are bewitched. That stupid one with the video. And she said, that's doom metal, not death metal or, or black metal. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know there's so many metals. Yeah. And all I can think of is Spinal Tap. I know. I know me too. When you talk about I know. Uh, it being purposely campy, I don't think it is, but you can't help but feel it's campy. Well, when you see like, it was like, okay, I'm going to watch this Venom video because these kids all liked Venom. And it's just so dumb with his leather things on and whipping his hair around. I'm just like, okay, uh, it's uh. just so, well, even like, back how can then, you even take it serious? Well, anyway. But anyway. So do well, you have an NW? I do. as background i was cutting back on subscriptions and stuff so Mm. i got rid of audible which was 15.99 yes a month and i had one credit left so i looked for something for a true crime that looked interesting that was I wanted to listen to a nice long one. I don't want to waste my credit on some seven hour thing. Yeah. And so this one was 27 hours. And I'm like, good, that'll (laughs) It's a more than 500 page book, the actual book, but it's called Monster and it's by Steve Jackson. And it was originally published in 1998. And then it was republished in 2013 in the Audible book is the 2013 and i think the only difference is he's got a thing at the end kind of updating things and it is about a i did hear of some of the crimes of this serial killer but the name of the guy itself didn't ring a bell there's one that will definitely ring a bell with you but the guy's name is tom luther mm. and it's in the i would say the second biggest serial killing part of the country colorado Mm. like the pacific northwest seems to be the biggest but then colorado seems to just have a lot of killings there was one he did where one of the husbands was a suspect for a long time i think it was like on dateline of 48 hours and stuff a woman worked 
somewhere in Colorado, one of those places. She was hitchhiking home. She never made it home, and it was a really cold, snowy night. They found her killed in a field, and another woman had disappeared the same night, and they found one of the other woman's socks where she was oh, found. Yeah. So I that. yeah. So for a long time her husband was the suspect. Her name was Bobby Joe something. Her husband was the suspect. I'll just go into the categories and we can reenactments doesn't apply with an audiobook. Mm-hmm. But I think you, this is where we sometimes talk about the audio itself, the reader or whatever, right? I'm not taking anything away. The reader was very good. I didn't write down his name and I don't want to look it up on my phone right now, but he had kind of a gravelly voice and like a Colorado accent. And he did a very good job. It's the kind of thing where when you're listening, he was good enough where you think the reader is the author. You know what I mean? When you're mm-hmm. listening to one where it's like that. And it's funny because when he did women's voices, he kind of did like a higher pitched thing. And it, it was just kind of funny. But he did a really, really good job. Just his tone and his voice is just this dry Midwestern cowboy kind of thing. So that was good. Okay. Narrative cliches. Oh, wait a minute. Before I even get to that, I'm taking away a point for excessive copaganda. It's not one of the... And for listeners who aren't familiar, it is cops are the big heroes. Everything they do is great. Everything they do is wonderful. As much as police complain about how misunderstood and mistreated they are, they benefit from extreme copaganda, from shows like Law and Order and all that mm-hmm. shit, and things like this. They benefit because basically the book, there's this cop who is determined to nail this guy. The cop's name is Scott Richardson. The writer does a good job of really characterizing people and getting in to them and making you feel them almost a novel type mm. way when i get to storytelling i'll talk about that but i am taking away a point for excessive All propaganda right. but anyway so narrative cliches i'm taking away a point there were a lot of things for instance the the cops are always right everything they do is fine when they lie to people it's mm. great they're getting one over on people and stuff the public defender or the defense lawyers are evil everything they do is wrong everything they do is bad The biggest narrative cliche is something that I've noticed in more and more books and documentaries and podcasts about serial killers, almost every single one, and it's really, really bugging me a lot, and that's the mother is always to blame. Uh, Yeah. She was either cold or smothering. Yes. Abusive or absent. Didn't stand up for him. And all these guys, almost all these guys, and they're all guys, these serial killers, had abusive, horrible, misogynistic, mean fathers. But yet somehow it's the mother's fault. And I think it's because the narrative is driven by men. And if a guy is killing all these women, it must be because he want because there's some woman that pissed him off. Like with Ted Bundy, it was his girlfriend and stuff. But I'm sure there are things about Ted Bundy's mother. People have said, and like this, the, the guy kept making a big deal about how a lot of these young women, this guy attacked or killed looked like his mother. And, but the cops would say, did she remind you of your mother? Well, when she was yelling, she sure did (laughs) everything. And he claims his mother was abusive which the author lets us believe. And then way at the end of the book, the guy's sister said, no, our mother wasn't abusive. So, 
but he doesn't question that. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, why when these people are pathological liars and the book makes it clear he's a pathological liar, but yet they always believe these guys when they say they were abused by their mother. One thing these books never say that I think is more of an explanation of why they're serial killers and their mother was either cold or smothering or too Mm -hmm. supportive or not supportive or whatever is that society supports and enables misogyny and if you're a psychopath and if you're prone to violence and if you want to kill people kill women you're pretty much supported in that until somebody finally has enough and arrests you most of these guys grew up in paternalistic misogynistic families where the father beat the mother and everything but it's either there, there was a problem with the mother or they're quote unquote just plain evil yes. nobody ever says I've never, yes exactly and, it, and it's funny because this book has this thread of and granted it was written in 1998 but this thread of casual misogyny and sexism that goes through it and like the author never questions things like one young woman that this guy beat up and her friend came her next door neighbor came running out and basically saved her she and the next door neighbor both had to take polygraphs. <laughs> and the author never questions why victims have to take polygraphs. And it's funny because I was reading another book at the same time that was written around the same time about the Connecticut Valley killer in New Hampshire and a, a couple victims and that had to take polygraphs. And the author, again, another male author, nobody's saying why are the victims taking poly? Why is this the only crime where victims have to take polygraphs? And things like the one of the women who got away from this guy, that one who had to take the polygraph, whose neighbor came out and, and saved her. The cops thought a long time it was her ex-boyfriend and stuff, even though it was obviously this guy. And nobody takes that one step further and says, why are the cops not believing her when she can describe the guy and everything like that? (laughs) So this misogyny, that narrative cliche, another thing is a woman, they make this point, like the cop does and the author does, that she's a quote-unquote true victim. That she's (laughs) this sweet, church-going, you-can't-say-anything-wrong-about-her type thing. And that's another cliche. You don't see it as much anymore, but you did then. And which is another thing that enables this guy. Mm -hmm. Like, if somebody has to prove she's pure as the driven snow in order for people to want to get this guy, then there's a problem. Another narrative cliche is the whole justice for the family thing, mm. which you hear and everything. I, I just really want to get this guy because I want justice for these families. And I'm like, I understand that. And I think that's a noble thing. But how about justice for justice? How about justice because beating, raping, and murdering women is wrong? Cops should be passionate about that. Because then they would catch more of these guys and more of these guys would go to prison and all these guys wouldn't feel like that they can get away with this shit. And I'm so I know that whole justice for the family shit because, well, shouldn't you be wanting, because you're a cop and you're supposed to catch murderers, shouldn't you be passionate about it because of that? <laughs> I mean, what if you have a, sh- what if the person has a shitty family or they don't have any family, then you don't care about i know that's what i was thinking so anyway that's a that's a minus one racial gender obtuseness minus one there's a couple times when he mentions i think the term back then was mexican for hispanic oh yeah just mentions that somebody is hispanic or mexican or whatever for no reason a mexican man blah 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 well 
all you had to do was say man because actually his ethnicity doesn't have any basis about what you're talking about. Then, of course, the gender. I already talked about some of it. But I also realized getting towards the end of this long, long, long book that all the men, both the, uh, the criminals, of which there were many, and the cops are very strong, active characters. And all the women are more passive bystanding type characters. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a subtle thing, but I was thinking of it as I read the book that the women are just people who are letting things happen to them where the men are all doing things, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think in real life, maybe the line was a lot more blurred, but this is the way the author saw it. I mean, he doesn't come out and say that. It's the way the book is written and it's the way that struck me. A lot of other gender obtuseness so that's why i took away a point there lack of good visuals since it's an audio book that doesn't apply i have not seen the original 500 plus page book hopefully he's got a lot of good photos in there but since i'm doing the audio missing pieces i'm taking away a point so this guy finally went to trial for one of the murders in 1996 the book came out in 1998. There is no mention, not even in passing, of DNA evidence. Wow. I looked it up. Colorado was using DNA criminal evidence by 1992 or 1993. And I don't know if there was any or not any, but even if there wasn't any in these cases. And this Steve Jackson's a journalist or a former journalist, but you would never know that DNA evidence existed. In the 2013 part, he mentions it. But I'm like, I kept waiting. (laughs) With all these women this guy ended up killing. Yeah. Is there, I mean, granted for some of his murders in the 80s and stuff, but they still saved body fluids and stuff like that. That's how they're solving a lot of these cold cases. But in 1998, I didn't know they were going to be solving cold cases that way. They were solving hot cases. There's not one mention, and I think that's a big missing piece. DNA was very talked about by the mid-90s. Another missing piece is, as I said, Tom Luther attacked and killed a lot of women, and it becomes clear more towards the end of the book that he probably did across several states. Mm. And there are some that are kind of mentioned in passing. He and his wife slash girlfriend were at this campground in West Virginia and she saw a woman rollerblading by and Tom kind of gave the woman a look up and down and then a little while and then he had to quote unquote go do something, got in the car and drove away and he didn't come back till the next day as he was wont to do. And then this woman just had disappeared. So obviously he killed her. And there were a lot of things like that, but they don't, he doesn't go into much detail. Like Tom Luther's originally from Vermont and they suspect he might be responsible for some murders there in Hartwick, Vermont, and stuff. But and I realized it was a very long book, and he was focusing on some specific cases in Colorado. But it was a little frustrating. It's like, so what happened with that Vermont one? What happened? Yeah. Like, they would mention him in passing, and it's like, well, he obviously killed a lot of people that they will never find out. And that's a little frustrating, too, that because cops are so territorial and don't want to share evidence which a little yeah. that comes up in this you know you have all these unsolved cases all these missing women and a guy like this probably killed a couple dozen or more women because he just couldn't stop it. he was just constantly attacking women oh, and and getting away with it in a lot of cases for a variety of reasons 
but mostly because cops don't give a shit about and the whole territorial thing is so and the territorial stupid. thing um they don't want to get the credit right or whatever if they ever solve so inaccuracies and acronyms i'm not taking away anything some of the other things i've mentioned could come under that category too storytelling you may be wondering at this point why i listened for 27 <laughs> hours if i have all these issues the story is well told i know that most people don't get as worked up as i do about all the things i've mentioned it's a well-told story like i'm reading another book now and I'm like, why isn't this book this engaging? Why isn't it? And I realized because she's writing it almost like a newspaper story mm-hmm. where she's telling what happens and then has quotes and stuff. Steve Jackson is a good writer and he really gets into this cop, Scott Richardson. And also this woman, Deborah, ended up being Tom Luther's partner for much of his adult life. She married him when he was still in prison kind Ugh. of thing. And she has a lot of issues mental health issues and he's actually sympathetic to her despite the misogyny of the book but he obviously managed to get people to really really open up to him Mm -hmm. and it reads or not reads listens like a novel the story is very very well told Hmm. despite my all my quibbles freshness i mean it's yet another serial killer book it's a guy i've probably heard of but just in passing like i said those two women who were killed the same night in colorado were the one sock i know i saw dateline or something but even though it's yet another serial killer book it was fresh because it was a well-told story i've heard of some of the cases but not the guy i don't think no um, i haven't i'd like to somebody to delve into more about what he might have done. you can do it repetition um no i can't repetition <laughs> i could take away points but i'm not and beating the drum i'm taking away a point there was a lengthy death penalty drumbeat at the end. Oh, jeez. And I understand why families want death penalty, yes, blah, blah, I blah. But too. the author doesn't have to act like it's ridiculous for people to not want the death penalty. Yeah. And between that and him beating the drum about the defense lawyer, at least one of them was a woman. The author just was relentlessly attacking of her. and So I feel like there was some misogyny there. And also... People are allowed a defense in our justice system. My feeling about it is, no matter how reprehensible, and also one thing that bugs me is, especially like the cop, the cop hated the defense lawyer and everything. You know, if you guys had all done your jobs better, most of this guy's victims would still be living their lives and have never known this guy. The cops get all worked up about the defense lawyer And basically what a defense lawyer is doing is trying to force the prosecution to prove that they did the best job they could to make sure they got the right person, whatever tactics they use. And, you know, the cops can lie. I know. And they're proud of it and they joke about it and stuff. And But then they got all worked up if they feel like a defense attorney's lying about something. And that's one thought that really struck me when I was listening to this at the end of the book when they were getting pissed off about the defense lawyer and the death penalty and all this is the whole propaganda of how blameless the cops are and you can just listen to this and hear mistakes that they mm-hmm. made that are kind of a little glossed over they don't have any fucking right 
to get their backs up when this guy was allowed through their misogyny and laziness and egos and everything else with these cops that this guy was allowed to go uh, for a dozen years and rape and kill women. Mm-hmm. And so that's a five. Ooh. That said, okay. given those issues I had with it, you listen to it, it's 27 hours. If you read it, it's over 500 pages. Those issues are not on every single page, and it's a good, interesting read. And I think it's a great example of how some guy who's obviously a psychopath, but charming and not bad looking, can just waltz through life, raping, attacking, and murdering women, and pretty much getting a pass for it until somebody's forced to do something about it. What was the title again? Monster. Yeah, right. By Steve Jackson. And of course, as you know, I some of my peeves are the use of monster and evil and all this shit because these guys, obviously this guy, as much as he acted like an asshole all the time too, everybody thought of him as a regular guy. They liked him and and yet he was obviously a dangerous guy. Yes. But got a pass. So I feel like the use of monster and evil and stuff. It's almost oversimplifies it. It oversimplifies it. It makes them more other. Like they're not like the guy next door. They're right. There's something different about them. And that things like misogyny and police laziness and incompetence and things like that are not contributing to the many, many, many men killing the many, many, many women. And I know that the most likely person to get killed in the United States is a young black man. And a lot of their murders are not solved either. And that's an issue for another day. Basically, this paternalistic society and the misogyny and the fact that men are allowed to... Your story was a perfect example of how men are allowed to act in dangerous ways where dangerous things happen from casual sexism that we still see every day in our lives to misogyny and stuff. It all adds up to much more than a mother who's either not affectionate enough or too affectionate or whatever the fact that men are allowed to behave a certain way and treat women a certain way and men who who have an inclination to go further and cause harm or violence are enabled by that and supported by that and so that's my two cents on that that's my ted talk (laughs) Uh, you know i've never listened to a fucking ted talk in my life i I have they are just I could never figure out what box. TED... I know I've been told what TED stands for. But... Technology, education, and something. Yeah, uh, that's boring. I know it's... Like, no, it's... Uh, um, some of them are good. They're just basically yeah, people telling you, you know. It's, it's just stuff. like a lecture. Okay. Well, it's getting late, so we gotta go. I know, I'm tired. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Yeah, thanks for We're listening. We're sorry we didn't thank you last time. We, for- we? we forgot to say goodbye last time. Oh, we we so got off that I edited out on a 20 or 30 minute discussion of that documentary about the disappearing plane and oh, stuff yeah. like that. I know I got mostly watch me that. and Liz and yeah and you just kept saying I got to watch that I got to watch that and then we forgot that we hadn't signed off. So why don't we sign off? Hi everybody, thank you. Say hi to Aunt Momo. Hi Kabibi. Oh, you pretty girl. You're so it's sweet. my podcast. Yeah, let me take it's a screen. One of the screenshots that I never... No, don't podcast. get that close. It looks creepy.
Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. What She's a pretty a girl. girl. Are she you loves her mama. She loves me. Can you please sit without being a pain in the ass? Schnora Rooch, a.k.a. Blackthorn, who is... God damn it. Don't, don't chew that. Just a minute. She thinks she has to rip up my old pages. I know. And, and put her out in the hall. 